0: Hey friend, welcome back for our second episode. Thank you guys so much for your support when I first released the episode and you guys sharing it on your stories or sharing it with your friends and to the people who rated the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. It really does help podcasts that are smaller and helps them get more exposure, which is really awesome. So thank you guys so much. And if you didn't tune in to the first episode, my name is Lauren and you're listening to A Nightmare on Their Street. You guys, the weather is hot as frick still. It's, I just want it to be cold, I'm already in the Halloween spirit, and it's freaking 102 degrees outside today. 102. Christmas and Halloween are literally my favorite holidays. And I've already started decorating like my recording slash desk space with Halloween decor. So I'm freaking ready, you guys. I have this cute little skull, some little purple lights. It's just, I love it with candle. Mm, it's so nice, but it's freaking a thousand degrees outside. Anyways, but I also watch like one or two scary movies leading up to halloween and so far i've watched the first two fear street movies on netflix which is actually an rl stein book the dude who wrote goosebumps but they made it for the screen in a three-part movie series and you guys it's so good it's like a young adult slasher movie my boyfriend dom is literally the very last last, last, last person to watch scary movies, which usually in turn means that I watch them alone, which is fine, but he watched most of the first one with me and the second one, and he said it was cool, so I definitely recommend it. I like them a lot, and the story is good. It's also very nostalgic, you know, the way a lot of people say that Stranger Things is, because The first one is set in the 90s, I think 1994, and the second one is set in 1978, I believe. So check it out, if that sounds like your cup of tea, I really like them. So as we move into the most magical, spooky time of the year, if there's anything you do want to hear in the month of October, please let me know because I'm ready to research and I hope you're ready to listen to my research. I definitely want to do an episode on maybe like the history of the Ouija board or if you've ever done a Ouija board and you have some like trippy experiences, send them to my email and we can talk about it together. It would be really cool to like, cause I've never done a Ouija board that it scares the shit out of me. I, I don't want to welcome anything into my life uh, cause I already look at enough scary shit as it is. I don't really want a demon hanging around me, you know? So that I'll read your stories, I just don't want to have any of my own stories, but yeah. Maybe one of the, I believe it's pronounced Dybic. it's said to be the world's most haunted object and even Post Malone had experience with this object, he was around it and you're not supposed to touch it and he touched it and bad shit started happening to him after he touched it. So. Yeah, it's probably haunted and, I mean, if it was me, I wouldn't have touched it. Like, that shit's scary, but yeah. So, definitely send me any suggestions or subjects you're interested in, or if you don't want to do the research yourself, I'll be happy to do all the research for you. Anyways, let's get into today's episode. I think today's episode is very interesting and I hope you think so too. On November 29th, 1987, 23-year-old Shirley Ann Ellis was making her way to Wilmington Hospital in Delaware. Some sources say she was a nursing student, others say she was a practicing nurse, but I want to say she was still a student because I think the most recent documentary that talked about this case said she was a nursing student at the time of this incident, so we're going to go with that. She was a nursing student. She was working with patients that were receiving treatment for AIDS, and she was planning on bringing a Thanksgiving food platter for the patients that she was caring for, which is very nice. Before AIDS was even understood by the medical field, the patients who had the disease were basically outcasts and weren't cared for the way patients should be. And in 1987, things were starting to kind of move towards the patients being treated better. By medical professionals. There's a famous picture of Princess Diana who's photographed, actually I believe it's in this year, she was photographed shaking hands with a person who was living with HIV and everybody lost their shit over it. They lost their goddamn minds over it. Like they didn't know really how the disease was transmitted. They thought it was like COVID, like you could breathe in HIV. But, obviously, now we know that you can't, and so everyone lost their goddamn minds over this picture. And Princess Diana even went on to be an advocate for people living with HIV, and she wanted to remove the discrimination and stigma against people living with HIV. So it really does say a lot about Shirley that she was in direct contact with these patients that many people didn't really feel safe around. So she was obviously a caring and very compassionate person. People say that she showed a knack for patient care and was very well-rounded in the medical field. Thanksgiving had passed three days prior to this and she wanted her patients to have a Thanksgiving experience. You know, you're stuck in the hospital, they don't have things like that, it doesn't feel like home, and she wanted to bring that to her patients. So she left her home and went on foot to the hospital. It was a really cold evening. The sun had gone down and she tried to hitchhike on a stretch of 14 miles on Route 40. Now this wasn't uncommon for Shirley, she didn't have a car, so she made her way around by hitchhiking. And it's not really uncommon during this time to hitchhike. So that's what she did. On this specific stretch of Route 40, the location is frequented by sex workers and their Johns. And at one point, Shirley was part of those who worked the highway so she did have prior familiarity with the area on top of using it to hitchhike. Her sister saw Shirley walking along the road at around 5 55 p.m and she was traveling in the opposite direction of her and unfortunately her sister didn't pick her up and her sister became the last person in her family to see her alive. Whoever picked Shirley up killed her, and dumped her body on the very same day. A few hours had passed and at about 9.25 p.m., some teenagers were looking for a spot to make out and they found something that was definitely more than they bargained for. Her body was found at the old Baltimore Pike Industrial Park on the side of the road, lying on her back. When police arrived, they found her wearing a pair of aqua blue pants pulled down to her knees And she was still wearing her sneakers. According to court documents, her injuries were extensive and she had ligature strangulation marks around her neck as well as marks or wounds on her abdomen area. Her skull had numerous lacerations on it and the marks that were left were consistent with a tool somewhat like a hammer where she had been struck three times. The crime scene photos of her body are consistent with the 3 lacerations, I did see them and they kinda are like rounded or half moon shapes the way you'd expect from a hammer's edge. She had a lot of bruising around her wrist which is consistent with binding, most likely to keep her from getting away. There was also like a smaller strip of this black tape that they found in her hair and it was most likely used to place over her mouth in order to keep her quiet. She also had bruising and specific patterns on her left breast and the nipple. The marks left behind were made with a tool that seemed like to have like a pinching pattern. The tool was something like pliers. You know that pinching pattern, well if you were to press it on skin, that's the pattern they found on her left breast and her nipple. Her body had no signs of sexual assault, but all signs showed that she was tortured anti-mortem, but her skull was hit after she died. The ME determined that Shirley's cause of death was strangulation and blunt force head trauma. At some time between 9.30pm and 10pm, State Police Officer Joseph Swiskey was called to the crime scene. Aside from his first impressions of the actual body, he noticed that there was no disturbances in the earth around her body where he was able to conclude that this was not the actual murder site but just a dumping ground. He also notes that even though she was brutally attacked, she had marks on her hands, like the palm of her hands, which indicated that she did put up a good fight against her attacker. Once her identity was discovered, the department notified Shirley's mother and questioned her to find any answers or learn more about Shirley's victimology. Officer Swiskey says that the best way to understand the situation in its entirety is to find details about the victim's life to understand the crime committed. This information can give law enforcement some idea about the crowd a victim hangs around, what their lifestyle is like, and what they may be involved in. As I said before, Shirley was a former sex worker, which police knew her involvement in solicitation, but she was also previously a drug user. Officer Swiskey took these findings into account about who she may have been around, and what could have led to the murder of Shirley. The state prosecutor, Kathleen Jennings, on the case used this victimology to try and narrow down some suspects, but unfortunately nothing came up. She is quoted in the newspaper, Delaware Today, saying that Shirley had, quote, no angry boyfriend or anything that would connect a murderer to her death. People believe that it was an interstate trucker. You know, it's very plausible that the murderer was a trucker because Route 40 is an interstate highway stretching 2,286 miles and it connects 12 states, begins at Utah and ends in New Jersey. So it quite literally brings the east coast to western states and it passes through huge cities like Denver, Indianapolis, and Baltimore. And in the state of Delaware, it briefly becomes a more commercial highway where it has like stoplights, Uh, gas stations along along the way. The case went cold for months, and officials involved in the case ended up with literally nothing. They had no leads, not a single witness, there was no evidence or any DNA to link the murder to somebody. This was also the 80s, and using DNA was a very new technique to link people to crime scenes, so who know how that had an effect on the way the beginning of the case played out. There was a cooling off period between victims, a period of no bodies being found or women going missing which could point to this person being a trucker and that's probably why it was talked about in the media so much in that way because it seemed like they were not pursuing women in the same area on a regular basis so they must not be from the area. After this cooling off period, 31-year-old Catherine DeMorrow was picked up off Route 40. The last time she was seen alive was June 28, 1988 at around 11:30 p.m. where she was seen walking along Route 40. Law enforcement was aware that she was an active sex worker, but they don't know if she was actually working that night, but I couldn't find anything pointing to her walking along the highway for any other purpose. So I think you can say that she was probably working that night, right? That night her life was taken away from her and she left behind two children Catherine's body was dumped in a construction site called fox run which is located off route 40. she was not discovered until the following morning at 6:25 a.m now retired officer james hedrick had four years experience in 1988 and he was working for the new castle police department he was called to the scene her body was placed in a similar way as Shirley's but Catherine was completely nude. She also had injuries very similar to Shirley's. Her ankles and wrists had bruising on them which indicated being bound and she also had a smaller piece of tape found in her hair the same way that Shirley did. No, I wonder if the tape ended up in their hair while they were still alive or if it was after the victim had died and he took the tape off. Or even when he was moving the body to a new location after they were murdered, or if the struggle of moving them, like, caused the tape to come off and go into their hair, I think it could kind of be symbolic if he had removed the tape himself once they could no longer make any noise or scream for help. Catherine also had no signs of sexual assault, and she did have injuries that were extremely similar to Shirley's, but... The mutilation of Catherine resulted in partial nipple removal. The year ruled Catherine's cause of death to be multiple blunt force injuries and strangulation in a manner very identical to Shirley's. There was one thing that stood out from Catherine's death that wasn't found on Shirley or where her body was found. Catherine was covered in blue fibers and two individual red fibers. In the evidence photos, I've seen that they look like really thin, like plasticky kind of looking fibers in a sort of royal blue tealish color. When her body was initially found, officials couldn't identify her, so they needed dental records to identify her. And once they matched her, her family was able to make a positive ID on the body. In the investigation discovery series, Grave Secrets, Officer Hedrick states that in this crime scene, it is also obvious that Catherine was not murdered where her body was found. Again, this indicates that the crime scene did not occur where the body was found because of the lack of earth disturbance. What I don't get is why Catherine's body had fibers on it, but Shirley's didn't, because legal documents say Catherine was covered in them, and it was really obvious. It makes me think that they weren't murdered in the same place... Or maybe Catherine and Shirley had different physical struggles when they were in the location where they were being murdered, like wrestling that would cause fibers to come loose or something like that and get on Catherine's body. Local law enforcement in Newcastle was familiar with certain details in Shirley's case that was being investigated by state police, and they thought some of those key elements in the case were very similar to Catherine's case. So, the Newcastle police did what any good police force does and asked state police to take a look at the crime scene found at the construction site to see if there were any similarities or connections between the two, even though the previous crime was committed seven months prior. Officer Swiskey arrived at the crime scene and he said it was very obvious that the same killer had committed both crimes. Now that the departments were aware that the killer was the same, they now had to deal with the fact that they were most likely dealing with a serial killer. This shocked the state and created panic because even to this day, this is the only known serial killer in the state of Delaware. Things got more intense, panic grew, and officials were made keenly aware of the fact that if the killer wasn't caught, they were more than likely going to have victims piling up. According to the book Law and Mental Health, A Case-Based Approach, the authors say that Quote, killers often dump bodies in areas within which they are relatively comfortable, so the proximity of the two bodies suggests that the offender either lived or worked nearby. The women were not sexually assaulted, suggesting that the perpetrator killed them for the sake of killing, not to hide a rape or other infraction. In short, there was no real motive. Offenders who commit multiple motiveless murders are not likely to stop, end quote. The two departments developed a task force for the case and it consisted of about 60 people who would work solely on catching the killer. This task force made the state's third largest police force during that time. Since this was the state's first probable serial killer, both Detective Swiskey and Officer Hedrick knew that they were out of their depth and did probably the best thing that they could do for their case. They called in the FBI. There's so many small towns and cities in our country that don't deal with murders like this on a regular basis and without the help of the knowledge of people who are specifically trained in this, there's things that will fall through the cracks like like they would if the force decided to handle this on their own. Our next episode is going to cover a case that exact thing happens and you guys are going to lose your shit over the incompetence of this specific police force. Because I've been researching this case for like two weeks now and I lose my mind on a daily basis. So make sure to listen to the next episode so you can be pissed off with me because it's crazy. Anyways, good on Delaware for asking for help when they needed it. The behavioral science unit based in Quantico was called and they definitively said that Delaware had a serial killer on their hands. According to Grave Secrets, the BSU put together a profile that would narrow down parameters for the suspect that they were searching for. Specifically, Agent Steve Martagian, I think is how you pronounce his last name, of the FBI, said that the person they were looking for would most likely be a male who is white. His age would range from anywhere in his 20s to early 30s. I think he said specifically 25 to 35. He display a machismo attitude and would probably be interested in some sort of SM pornography. This profiling method was introduced in the 1970s by John Douglas who is a retired FBI special agent and he was the unit chief. If you've ever watched the show Mindhunter, I think think Netflix picked it up but it was originally on MSNBC but Netflix picked it up and the show is kind of loosely based on the information founded by John Douglas and his method of understanding the serial killer mind and how he used that information to create the profiling method. He has a bajillion books written, but I read um, Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit and the book was really good. If you want a book to get you started on understanding criminal profiling and getting a special agent's perspective on the profiling method, it's a really good book and it's super easy to read. Anyways, back to the case. (laughs) They were also able to zone in on the kind of work that the killer did for a living, which the FBI said he did some sort of work with his hands. This could be something like construction or carpentry or something like that. They were able to make this connection or conclusion, because the killer was most likely using tools on his victims that he was comfortable using and working with. The same way that, like, you and I are comfortable using a butter knife to spread peanut butter onto a slice of bread. We wouldn't use a spoon, right? It, it would be awkward and not really easy to do because that's not something we're comfortable and used to working with. It's the same with this case. They also said that this killer is not an interstate trucker. This killer is living nearby. All of this information was new to the detectives in Delaware. So to recap, we have two known victims, victim profiles, a criminal profile, and zero leads. The force needed to further develop their investigation because looking for someone who did not want to be found was obviously proving to be extremely difficult. I mean, it was the 80s. It's not like today where you have people literally incriminating themselves on social media. The FBI put forth the idea that instead of looking for their subject and trying to get to them, let the suspect come to them. They decided to run a decoy operation with a female police officer and have her play the part of a sex worker. She'd have to share characteristics with the previous victims just in case the killer had a preference for something specific with the women that he had killed and she'd have to walk along Route 40. They needed someone fit for the job. Here we bring in 23-year-old now retired Officer Renee Lano of the Newcastle Police Department. In some documents she is referred to as Officer Renee Tashner but I think because she had later gotten married so her maiden name is Tashner. I'm not completely positive but in official court documents they use Lano so we're gonna go with that. Officer Lano was a rookie only had four months experience on the job, but even with only four months under her belt, Officer Hedrick was taken to the fact that she was street smart and she was ready to do the job. She was wired with a gun hidden and instructed not to enter any vehicles that approach her as she walked along Route 40. There were other female officers who were also working undercover, but Officer Lano ends up being a key member in this case. Several Johns were looking for the company of a sex worker that night but their suspect didn't turn up. The police were left empty handed. On August 22nd of that same year, another woman was reported missing. Margaret Lynn Finner was 26 years old when she went missing. She was also a sex worker and at the time she went missing she was working on Route 13. It's just a route that runs concurrently with Route 40 so they're basically the same place. A number of witnesses placed her there where they saw her get into a blue Ford panel that had no side windows and round headlights, but no other descriptive elements. The police used this information for their investigation and implemented it into their decoy stent for any future involvement with this vehicle, so if they saw the vehicle, they would take more of an interest in it. Margaret was the mother of two children. She had active parents in her life that loved her, and because of this, the police force considered her a victim because she had been missing for 48 hours. About a month passed by, and Officer Lana was still working the decoy operation on Route 40, patrolling and searching for their suspect, all in hope of finding that blue van. In this time, a slight glimmer of hope happened for the forensic team on the task force, who had been analyzing the blue fibers that were found on Catherine's body. They found where the blue fibers had originated from. The blue fibers were linked to a type of carpeting that ha- had only. The blue fibers were linked to a type of carpeting that only had a limited amount of quantity sales in the locations nearby which could make it easier to find where it came from and who might have purchased it. One of the nights that Officer Lana was working, specifically September 14th, 1988, a blue Ford van passed her seven times within a 20-minute window. She called in the tag numbers, then moved to a more remote, darker, and isolated area where she signaled to the vehicle to come to her, and the van did so and stopped next to her. When the van pulled up, the driver said to her, I'm tired of riding around by myself." She then asked him a few questions like what he did for work and questions like that. Come to find out the man in this van is white, 31 years old, worked as an electrician, just like the FBI said he would be. Officer Lano said he avoided eye contact, he acted nervously, and did his best to convince her to get into the van. While she was leaning into the van to talk to the driver. She was also complimenting his van saying that she liked it and asked him if he could turn on the overhead light so she could see the interior of it because he, she liked it so much. He obliged. When he turned on the light, Officer Lana was quoted saying, My stomach just sank. Blue carpet. Blue carpet everywhere. She said that that was an oh shit moment for her. She kept her cool and was able to tear away some of the fibers from the door jam while simultaneously refusing to get into the car. At this point, Officer Hedrick was running the license plate of the van and when she finally got away from the van, because I think her reason for getting away from the van was saying that his price was too low for her, so she finally got away from him and she too wrote down the license plate number on a piece of paper. As the fibers that she collected were being sent to the lab, the license plate registration information came back. And the man who the vehicle was registered to was Stephen Brian Pinnell. Stephen Brian Pinnell was a 31-year-old Delaware Union electrician, a man who previously applied to work for the police department. He had a wife, he was the father of two children, and his criminal history was squeaky clean. On September 20th, a woman's body was found on the rocks by the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. She would be identified as 22-year-old Michelle Gordon. She was a sex worker who frequented Route 40. Michelle's murder had the same characteristics and injuries as the first two victims. She was mutilated, and the ME officially determined that she was a victim of homicide. She had no official cause of death because her body had been submerged in water, so she had extreme levels of decomp. While her autopsy was performed, they found uh, cocaine in her system, and according to the Emmy, it's possible that her heart gave out while she was being tortured by her attacker. He states that her heart was not capable of undergoing the shock of being tortured and beaten. On September 23rd, 26-year-old Kathleen Ann Meyer was last seen around 9.30 p.m. off Route 40. The last person to see her alive was an off-duty police officer where she was getting into a blue Ford van. This officer took down the license plate and unfortunately, Kathleen was never seen again, dead or alive. With so much suspicion against Steven, the police began to tail him. According to the Delaware Today, while Officer Lana was working undercover, she attended and sat next to Pinnell while attending a Moody Blues concert. And at another point, she was even approached by Pinnell's daughter, who was asking for donations for a school fundraiser. Officer Lano is quoted saying, She was a kid, and you never want any child to experience what is happening. Dude, could you imagine your dad? Like, people follow, like police following him because they think he's a serial killer? That would, that would be insane. Pinnell had been repeatedly driving along the same stretch of highway along Route 40, but never picked up any of the decoy workers. On September 30th, 1988, they got Pinnell on a traffic violation. When they pulled him over, they found a blood stain, blue fibers, and red cloth swatches. Because of Delaware's Attorney General Charles Oberly, he signed a search warrant to search Pinnell's trailer, his shed, and any vehicles he owned as well as his person. While the police pursued these warrants, they were able to seize a buck knife that was found on Pinnell's person, eight pairs of pliers a bag of unused flexi-cuffs, and two rolls of duct tape. This was the same tape they found in the victim's hair. They were also able to lift prints that belonged to the victims, and they found blood of the victim in the blue carpet fibers, as well as hair that matched the hair of the victims. The police had everything they needed to convict Pinnell, and he was charged on November 29, 1988, with first-degree murder for the deaths of Shirley Ellis, Catherine DeMorrow and Michelle Gordon. In the same month of November, two hunters found Margaret's body on the edge of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, the third woman who had gone missing. Her cause of her cause of death could not be determined because of the level of decomp in her body from being in the water for so long. It was like three months or something like that. His trial began a year later on September 26th of 1989 and went on for two months. A lot of the members in the community were Essentially, pissed off with this case and wanted Pennell dead. I can imagine having a serial killer emerge in your state after something like this had never happened before. I'd probably be pissed too. I mean, in California, we have such a huge population here that like murder like this isn't really surprising anymore and doesn't really make the news. So I can imagine that it's quite the shocker for something like this to happen. Cause if you look at Delaware's news and like cases like this, they still report on this killing, this serial killer. So, to talk of the town. At the start of his trial, Pennell's defense attorney, Eugene, I think it's Mauer, Mauer, um, attacked and denied the use of the fibers as evidence in the trial because Officer Lano's removal of the evidence to the attorney was unconstitutional search and seizure, but Judge Richard Gablian said that the fibers were within plain view of officer lano and the evidence was seized legally because of an exception to warrant requirements that is recognized by the united states supreme court and all criteria was met and the prosecution was allowed to use the blue fibers as evidence After he was shut down on that account, Pinnell argued that the police didn't have probable cause to seize the fibers because their evidentiary value was not immediately apparent. And yet again, the court shut him down, saying that the police are not required to know for a fact that an item is evidence in order to seize it. So, not long after the trial began, Pinnell's attorney didn't want to represent him anymore, so Pinnell went on to represent himself. And Penal's shitty demeanor showed in court, in front of the jury, and probably didn't help his case. He would talk crudely about the victims in the case, and he even said that he had picked up DeMaro, paid her $25 for oral sex, and then dropped her off, and then he made a, quote, joke, saying that she gave him $10 back afterwards. Now, my favorite part of the trial is... That they brought in the FBI special agent that I had talked about before, Agent John Douglas. At this time, he was the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit Director, and he testified as an expert in understanding serial murders. Like we said before, when the FBI came in, they definitively said that the two, first two murders were done by the same person. So, Agent Douglas comes in and he states in court that all of the murders were committed by the same person. And then Pinnell goes on to argue that the trial court abused its discretion in using Agent Douglas as an expert. Pinnell tried to use the Fry Test against Agent Douglas. I had to google it because I had no idea what the hell the Fry Test was because I'm obviously not a lawyer so so I had to google it and according to its legal definition, it's, this is a long one guys, the results of scientific tests or procedures are admissible as evidence only when the tests or procedures have gained general acceptance in the particular field to which they belong. So basically, I think Pennell is saying that the information Agent Douglas was providing was not reliable or accurate and doesn't stand against scientific testing. I think that's what it means. If you're a lawyer, let me know if I'm wrong. (laughs) But I think that's what I'm understanding it to be. I don't know but the court ruled that agent douglas was only providing expert opinion based on his knowledge and experience working with serial killers or killers who commit serial murder seriously guys i love this man agent john douglas he's read his books please in the book law and mental health he didn't read, write this book but the author stated that stephen Pinnell's profile was quote developed through a rational application of existing knowledge to the evidence at hand. To the extent that profilers' knowledge is guided by accurate research, they engage in a logical process with a scientific basis and reasonable odds of success. Anyways, the courts determined that the injuries on the first two victims were so similar to each other that it had to be the same person who committed the crimes. And with the mounds of evidence found with the first murder he has to also be guilty of the second murder. The evidence, because there is evidence at both crime scenes, but if you're convicted of one and there's evidence at the second crime scene, then you had to have done both of them. The evidence that gave enough support to convict Pennell were three different pieces. The first was the knife they pulled from his person when they executed the search warrant, The knife had aqua blue cotton fibers attached to it that matched the pants of Shirley that she was wearing when they found her. The fibers matched at a microscopic level with significant characteristics that were similar between the two. The next piece of critical evidence was a duct tape that was found. It's a specific type that was sold only to certain people and those people being in the building trade that Pinnell worked within. This was the same tape found in Shirley's hair. The third key piece of evidence was the pliers found that gave pinch mark type bruises that were consistent with the ones found on Shirley's abdomen. This was the very first trial in the United States history that used DNA as definitive evidence to convict a person. Because the use of DNA evidence was such a, like, foreign and unknown territory, Judge Ghiblian relied on the opinions and expertise of those with proper knowledge to verify the DNA evidence, specifically the blood that was found in the blue fibers, as well as the victim's hair that was found. On November 23, 1989, the jury convicted Pinnell of the murder for Shirley Ellis and Catherine DeMaro. After the verdict was read, the state prosecutor Jennings received flowers from the women working on Route 40, and the card read, "From the women of Route 40, you made us feel like human beings." According to Delaware, according to Delaware today, the jury still wanted justice for Gordon's case, and rightfully so, so there would be another trial even though he would be serving two life terms with the first conviction. So, after his conviction, Stephen pled no contest, but did not confess. So, while you do not admit your guilt, you do admit the truth of the facts alleged in the indictment. So, he, after his conviction, um, he pled no contest um, to the murders he was convicted of, and he made it known in court that he wished to receive the death penalty, which was not granted by the courts. You know, I don't understand... I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Maybe there's a reason for it. But why would you plead no contest, but want the death penalty? Doesn't that show you're guilty? There's got to be a reason. I don't know it, though. But anyways. To further his plea for the death penalty, the court had two witnesses testify in favor of Pennell's guilt in order for Pennell to get his wish of the death penalty. According to Pennell, he deserved the death penalty under the Hebrew Bible's law. These laws are quoted in the Bible in Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, quote, whoever kills a person, the person shall be put to death, as well as Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, quote, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. He's also quoted saying, this court has found me guilty on the testimony of witnesses, so I ask that the sentence be death as said by the state's law and God's law. That's all I have to say. On October 31st, Halloween, of 1991, Pennell was sentenced to death. Judge Richard Gablins ruling stated, The evidence shows that he held the women in captivity, bound hand and foot, he tortured her, he murdered her, and disposed of her body. Her pain and suffering calls for retribution. Delaware State Constitution says that every death penalty judgment should be heard by the supreme court and on february 11th 1992 he went before the court as the only defendant in delaware's legal history to represent himself in supreme court as well as the only man convicted to seek the death penalty he did not plead guilty to the murders he committed he was granted the death penalty and was scheduled to be executed on march 14th 1992. when that day came 9 a.m. came around, and the Supreme Court rejected the last day of execution. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, he had no last words to give while he was being strapped down to be injected, and he took the secret of Kathleen's body's location to the grave. He wore a gold cross that was pinned on his right collar, and the larger woven cross of blue and white cloth laid in his left breast pocket, as well as black rosary beads draped around his neck. He was then executed at 9.49 a.m. by lethal injection in Delaware's Correctional Center. He was the first person to be executed in the state of Delaware since 1946. Margaret Lynn Finner, whom Pennell was not convicted of, her father was at the execution. His name was Robert Barlow. He said that he was relieved that the execution was over, but he sympathized for Pennell's wife and two children. He is quoted saying, I feel sorry for Mr. Pinnell's family and kids who are now victims also. On the flip side, he was also angered by the Department of Corrections because they sent him a letter rejecting him as for being an actual witness of the execution. He and Michelle Gordon's family had to stay outside. Corrections Commissioner Robert Watson said that this rejection was due to any relatives not being given consideration for viewing the execution because of the possibility of emotional outbursts. He's quoted saying the purpose was to do it well and carry out the order. In another newspaper clipping from the Review in Delaware, a picture of Marlene Sim, the mother of Michelle Gordon, was photographed hugging her son after Pennell was executed. People celebrated the death of Pennell and others protested. On the same clipping, a picture of university professor Dr. John Beer and his wife Fran were standing together holding a sign that says, Abolish the death penalty. According to the newspaper, Marlene Sims is quoted saying to her son, He's dead. It's all over, baby. She was hugging him with tears in her eyes. She said, He'll never hurt anybody again. It's a new beginning for us. And that is the case of Stephen Bryan Pinnell. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found today's episode interesting. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast. It would mean so much to me and it would really help out the podcast. And if you'd like to find the podcast on social media, the Instagram and TikTok handles are at a Nightmare on Their Street. Twitter is A-N-O-T-S podcast. And our email is a Nightmare on Their Street at gmail.com. But yeah, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.